welcome to the Carolina Snowflakes podcast, where two Southerners come to terms with their liberal snowflake tendencies. We're your hosts. I'm Amanda. And I'm Jason. And we're here with part six of our Black Lives Matter series here on the Carolina Snowflakes podcast. This has been an ongoing series that we've been doing as white people. As two very white people. Talking about what we've learned and what we can share with other white people mm-hmm. about the Black Lives Matter movement and mm-hmm. what is going on in the world of right. Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And I've learned a lot throughout this series. It's a series that I really enjoy doing. Same. And I spend so much time uh, learning about everything else in the world. And it's nice to say, like, I'm going to sit down and learn about something that, as a white person, I easily overlook. Because that's the way white people tend to roll. Yeah, and just being where I live in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean... Rural Appalachia. We live in rural Appalachia. This isn't the kind of place where I am exposed on a daily basis to issues that affect the Black Lives Matter movement. Right. <laughs> um. And so it's nice to set out time to myself and to say, like, I need to research and learn about this thing that I don't see every day. Because the just whole... because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. Right. And mm-hmm. and I've, I've felt like this series is a, something we've been doing just to keep everyone abreast with us as we do our own learning. That's right. And uh, I don't want to ever presume to speak for any black people at all. No way. And no. Um, God... I would never want to do that. And if, no. if I ever sound like I'm doing that, just shake a stick at me and tell me, like, dude, don't do that because that's white privilege as hell and not a cool thing to do. Right. Um, and I'm sure I've done it a bunch of times in my life and I regret it. <laughs> right. Well, one thing I've noticed that as we do this series, we we are learning and we're catching ourselves in those moments where yeah. we are putting our own thoughts first and mm-hmm. we're making assumptions. Yeah, I don't want to do that. We're getting pretty good at calling our own selves out. It's that. a thing to try to do. It's yeah, hard. It's th- it, it requires effort. I mean, if I'm going to call myself out, the most recent thing for me is that I haven't done as much reading on it as I did immediately following the George Floyd, the murder, and yeah. then all of the aftermath from the, the protests and everything like that. Right. There was a lot of literature coming out at that point, and I was consuming a lot of it, and I feel like a lot of quote-unquote woke white people were doing the same thing. They were. And... I, like a bunch of them, haven't been consuming as much of it. That's partially because not as much of it has been coming out, but that's not a good excuse because there's a shitload of it out there. Right. So I can't use that as an excuse. Right. Um. The truth is that I, I just like everybody else, consumed a lot of it when it was, it was like in my face. It was topical because it mm-hmm. had just happened. And I feel like I am guilty as anybody else of not deliberately moving that forward. And I want to fix that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's a thing I want to fix about myself. Right. That I want to admit to, and I hope other white people out there admit to that too. It seems like a phenomenon that I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it definitely has slowed down the... Mainstream coverage? Yeah. Just the, yes, the national news coverage Mm -hmm. um, and push has definitely seemed to slow down a bit. Yeah. But like I said, just because you're not seeing it doesn't mean it's not still happening. I know. And and it's Black History Month this month. And so it's as good a time as there ever was to be like, we need to focus on this. Right. So in our recent episode titled, Where Have All the Trump Flags Gone? Mm -hmm. You mentioned the backlash of white people being mad because vaccines for COVID were being held aside specifically for 
members of the black community as part of like a uh, distribution equality effort. Right. Yeah. I'd said that there was angry white people who were mad at people holding the vaccines for equitable distribution. Yeah. Not just for black people, but for uh, other minority groups. Just minority groups in general. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, now that vaccines are being administered around the country, it's becoming apparent that there is a drastic difference between the number of white people getting the shots and the number of black people getting the shots. That's why they're trying to make this effort to Mm -hmm. withhold a specific amount of the vaccine doses for minorities yeah like i said in that episode if we don't vaccinate everybody then it kind of defeats the purpose absolutely and right here in north carolina for example the cone health group announced this week that they are setting aside 35 percent of their vaccines for minority recipients Mm -hmm. cone health is a large medical service provider in the greensboro area where people of color make up about 40 percent of the population served by them okay but nearly 78 percent of vaccines given by cone health so far have gone to white people so they saw the they saw that number and they were like this is the problem yeah that's not good yeah so we're gonna start setting aside Mm-hmm. 35% of vaccines specifically for minorities in the community that we Good. serve. Yeah, no, it's great. So there's movement not only with Cone Health, but with many medical providers and health departments to make vaccines more accessible to black folks by bringing the vaccines to their communities, specifically to areas where people may find it more difficult to get to a mass vaccination site due to transportation gaps or because leaving work for a whole day or more to go get vaccinated simply isn't an option. So they're holding clinics in local churches and community centers within black communities to make it easier for people to squeeze in getting vaccinated into their, you know, Hmm. work day or whatever. Yeah. Well, I find that fascinating. It reminds me a lot of the, the, the zero sum game mentality that like for for whatever reason, there are white people that assume when black people get something that they're losing it. Yeah. And that's really not the case here at all. I don't think that anything could be more illustrative of how that's not the case than this vaccine. I think it's really smart, too, that they're moving the vaccine sites or the clinics into the local communities Mm -hmm. as opposed to the mass vaccination site. Right. Because, and this is a thing that I think a lot of white people tend to just not even really think about, Uh but those mass vaccination sites are like one giant mess of traffic. Mm -hmm. And who do they call in to handle the traffic? (laughs) The cops. Yeah. And as a white person, we don't look at cops usually as being like a threat. Yeah. But like black people... They do. Well, because they get killed by them. Right, because the cops are a threat. Uh So, like, I think it's really smart to move away away from the mass sites and offer an option that's convenient. You don't have to lose a Mm -hmm. day's, you know, pay, and there aren't cops everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't blame a black person if they were, like, not comfortable with going to a place with a lot of white people and police. Yeah, no. But you see how you and I wouldn't think twice about it. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. Because we have white privilege. uh Uh-huh. Interesting, huh? I I wouldn't ever blame somebody if they wouldn't want to do that. No, I wouldn't either. Plus, there's an effort to add more, like, a face to vaccinations Mm -hmm. by the use of celebrity endorsements and people of high social status getting vaccinated live on television. 
our president mm-hmm. and vice president were both vaccinated live on TV. I mm-hmm. watched both of them because <laughs> I'm a nerd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and here where we live, Gladys Knight was vaccinated in our community this week. Cool. And you may be asking yourself, why would Whoosh. Gladys Knight be getting vaccinated in rural Western North Carolina, mm-hmm. deep in the ass crack of Appalachia? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's because she married a man from here mm-hmm. whose family is from here, and she frequents the area pretty regularly. And in fact, she and her husband founded a community center in our area for our black residents. Yeah. So her act of getting vaccinated um, was in a very public way and set kind of the example of having a face for Mm -hmm. uh, vaccination Mm -hmm. to just show that it's important and that it's safe Mm -hmm. and that you can go do it and it's okay. Yeah, I think um, white people might not understand that if, if you somehow vaccinated only white people and the virus just kept going among black people, it would eventually mutate and then be immune to your vaccine and then white people would get it again. So it defeats the purpose. Even if you're racist, it defeats the purpose if you don't vaccinate black people. Right. I just wanted to point that out that like, even if you're racist, it doesn't work. It's still a bad idea. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think the point with like offering a face or a person who's in power um, to represent getting vaccinated is, is also an effort to try to, communicate um, to the black community that this time you can trust the government Mm -hmm. for this medical treatment. That's hard. Because that certainly hasn't always been the case. (laughs) No. No. Um, One of the biggest hindrances aside from access um, in, in having black folks get vaccinated is just kind of a general distrust of our government when it comes to medical treatment. Yeah. And that distrust is rooted in a whole lot of very real mistreatment and abuse of black Americans at the hands of doctors and scientists. Recently, like while being paid for and condoned by the United States federal government. Mm -hmm. One of the most egregious examples of this type of racially motivated abuse was the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Yeah. Or as it was formally called at the time, the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in Negro males. Mm. The Tuskegee study uh, is arguably the most infamous biological research study in United States history. By far. Yeah. In 1932, 600 black men from Macon County, Alabama were recruited to take part in this study. Of these men... None were informed what the study was for or why they were recruited. Mm -hmm. Most, if not all of them, were poor, rural sharecroppers with little to no formal education, and many were also illiterate. Yeah. The study was conducted by by the United States Public Health Service and the Centers for Disease Control in collaboration with the Tuskegee University, then known as Tuskegee Institute, a historically black college in Alabama. Mm -hmm. Of the 600 participants in the study, 399 had latent long-term syphilis. The other 201 men did not. The study was slated to last for about six months to a year, but wound up lasting for 40 years and arguably would have lasted even longer if it weren't for a whistleblower named Peter Buxton. Wow. So, and this is a confusing part that I think a lot of people don't know. 
the men who were recruited, they already had syphilis. Yeah, or a lot. A, of them. a lot of people think the government gave them syphilis. Well, apparently, from what you said, a lot of them did, but not all of them. Right. So the the three hundred and ninety nine were the study group. The two hundred and one were were the control the group. control group. Mm-hmm. Right. But a lot of people seem to think that they were given syphilis. Mm. And although the government did do a lot of really messed up things involving syphilis and infecting people, this case. That's not what happened. Uh-huh. They actually did have syphilis uh-huh. and were brought in because the government wanted to study the long-term effects of syphilis. They didn't want to give them syphilis and then study them for a year. Yeah. They wanted them to already have it uh-huh. and see what kind of effects it was having on their bodies. Instead of curing it, which right. we could do. Right. So the entire reason was for the study was rooted in the racist belief that black people's physiology was significantly different than that of white people, and the goal was to see how syphilis affected black men over a long period of time. More specifically, it was believed that syphilis did more cardiovascular damage to black folks and more neurological damage to white folks. It was also believed that black men had higher rates of sexual promiscuity and would thus be more likely to already have syphilis in long-term stages. So the whole thing was just like... Like rooted in racism. 100% racist. Yeah. The men who were chosen for the study were not made aware of their own infections by the attending physicians of the study. Yeah. They were simply told that they were being recruited to receive, quote, free medical treatment. Mm -hmm. Their showing up for said medical treatment was considered to be their giving of consent. Yeah. You have to keep in mind that this was in... The rural, racist South. Yeah. Getting to see a doctor was a luxury, generally only afforded by white people. Yeah, I think that's the fucked up part is they thought they were going to be getting help. Yes, they fully trusted what was happening. Yeah. Because it was doctors. That were telling them to do this thing because it was They were going to get free medical treatment. Yeah, which is kind of like telling them they need to take this vaccine. Mm -hmm. The study also happened to employ a black female nurse named Eunice Rivers. Mm -hmm. Rivers was a graduate of the Tuskegee Institute and was pivotal in not only recruiting the men for the study, but also in keeping them enrolled in it. She was the face that they saw and came to trust. She also tended to minor medical treatments for the men that weren't related to syphilis. They trusted her. Eunice's role in the study has been widely discussed and disagreed upon. Some said she was a complicit race traitor who did wrong by the people of her community. Mm. Others have said that she was just as much a victim as the men she recruited, and she was simply following orders made by her white supervisors and the white-run government. Wow. It's hard to know how much she actually knew about the study. Yeah, that's messy. (laughs) Or how much of a victim she really was. But of all the employees of the 40-year study, she's the only one who was there the entire time. Hmm. She built relationships with these men and their families and Hmm. their children. She arranged burials and funeral services. Like I don't even know what to think about that. It went real deep. Yeah. The men in the study were not only kept in the dark on their own status as having syphilis, but they were prevented from receiving treatment from other medical providers, even in the army. Oof. 
So during World War II, 256 of the infected men in the Tuskegee study were drafted into the military and upon examination were diagnosed with syphilis. Uh They were ordered by the government, by the army, to seek treatment immediately with military-approved doctors. Wow. But the PHS, Public Health Services, and the CDC got wind of the orders and immediately intervened. That's so fucked up. Isn't it? Wow. They halted any attempted medical intervention, and the men were removed from the list of servicemen scheduled to receive medical treatment. But they still had to go serve? Jesus. Yeah. They were sent to war to fight for our country, potentially die for our country while infected with syphilis. Jesus. That mess up. Uh Uh-huh. My goodness. There's so much wrong involved. Uh Uh-huh. By 1947, penicillin was the go-to treatment for syphilis. And Uh as a result of how well it worked with so few side effects, a national campaign was created to get the word out. Ironically, by the CDC, yeah, um, on treating the disease with this antibiotic. And when the campaign arrived in Macon County, Alabama, the PHS and CDC intervened yet again and prevented the men in their study from getting treatment. <sighs> oh my God! Right. So just to note, syphilis is a disease that can remain dormant in a person's body for uh-huh. many years. But if left untreated, can cause a whole host of problems, including brain damage, as well as damage to the heart and other organs. Uh-huh. Syphilis is divided into four stages. You have primary, secondary, latent, and tertiary. As the disease progresses, it gets harder to treat and does more damage to the person infected. Uh-huh. It can cause the development of tumors both inside and outside the body. It can cause strokes, aneurysms, blindness, and can be transmitted from mother to child during childbirth, which is known as congenital syphilis. Mm -hmm. If left untreated, syphilis has a mortality rate up to 58%. Yeah, that's what killed Napoleon, right? It will kill you. Yeah. Yeah. That's why he was all weird looking. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So what did the United States government do? It took 600 black men, over half of whom had syphilis, and purposefully left that syphilis untreated for 40 years, during which the men were poked and prodded, had regular blood draws, lumbar punctures, and were treated for what they called bad blood. Jeez. With things like mercury and arsenic. What? Yeah, because those were experimental treatments for syphilis at the time. Whoa. So they were essentially guinea pigs for racist doctors and our government covered the cost. Yeah. What's crazy is that during the 40 years, numerous findings and results of the syphilis study were actually published in medical journals around the country, blatantly outlining what was happening to these men. Yet barely a handful of other medical professionals and doctors who came across these published findings raised any sort of concerns. Wow. They read them and said, hmm, okay. (sighs) It's crazy. Isn't that nuts? Uh Uh-huh. It wasn't until 1972 when Peter Buxton a PHS venereal disease investigator leaked information surrounding the study that the truth finally came out and the study was halted. Wow. 
Buxton had actually raised alarms six years prior when he wrote a letter to the director of the Division of Venereal Diseases at PHS, basically his boss, Uh and expressed concerns over the ethics and morality of the Tuskegee study. Yeah. At that point, the CDC stepped in and reaffirmed the continuation of the study, essentially saying that the study would continue until all participants were deceased and autopsied. That's so messed up. I don't even understand what possible gains they thought they were getting from that. They were hellbent on it, though. Wow. The CDC at the time had full and vocal support from both the National Medical Association and the American Medical Association to continue the Tuskegee syphilis study. I don't understand why. They firmly believed that they were going to find out information that could never be found out any other way that's so ridiculous it's yes even if that was true it would be immoral but it's not even true and so the study continued until buxton took it to the press the story first ran in the washington star and then ran on the front page of the new york times there was a massive and major public outcry. Good. Which led to the intervention of political leaders who then pressed the CDC to open a formal investigation. Yeah. The panel Into of themselves? In- yes, they had to Ugh. investigate themselves. Ugh. The panel of investigators found that the study participants were not informed of the study's actual purpose and that the study was medically unjustified. You don't they say. They then ordered the study to be terminated. Good. Yeah. Yeah, so that happened. Like, I don't, I can't imagine what gains they could possibly get, even if it was moral, but it's not. It's not at all. Oh, my God. Two years later, in a class action lawsuit filed by the NAACP on behalf of survivors and their descendants, the U.S. government paid $10 million, which would be the equivalent of about $52 million today, and had to pay for uh, free, real treatment <laughs> to those still living and their families. Yeah, and they should be allowed to pick their doctors. <laughs> they should be allowed all the yeah. things, really. That same year, Congress passed the National Research Act and created a commission to study and create policy surrounding regulations um, governing studies involving human participants. As a result of the Congressional Act and of the policies created by the commission, clinical trials in the United States now are required to have informed consent Hmm. and they're required to communicate diagnosis and accurate reporting of test results. By the end of the study in 1972, only 74 of the original syphilis-positive men were still alive. 28 had died of syphilis, 100 had died of related complications, 40 wives of the men had been infected, Mm. and 19 children had been born with congenital syphilis. (sighs) Yeah. That's so sad. Yeah, it's really messed up. In 1997, then-President Bill Clinton formally apologized and held a ceremony at the White House for surviving Tuskegee study participants. Uh There were only eight still living at that point. Yeah. Well, it was like, sorry, I... Yeah, yeah, I mean, what, what kind of sorry can you say for that? Yeah. I mean, he didn't do it, but I mean, still. No, but he apologized on behalf of the United States yeah. government. But I don't know I don't know how they could ever make that right. Yeah. Though many people have heard of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, they may not be fully aware of all these gruesome details. Right. I certainly didn't know I all didn't the nitty-gritty. No. I also didn't know, and I'd wager that most Americans don't know, that the U.S. was doing the same thing down in Guatemala in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. 
They were doing literally the same syphilis study. The same study. thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, in 2019, so just like two years ago, yeah. a U.S. federal judge found that Johns Hopkins University, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and the Rockefeller Foundation must face a $1 billion lawsuit for their roles in the experiments in Guatemala. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not... Isn't that crazy? I know, it still happens. I also wasn't aware of just how frequent human experiments were in the U.S. between the late 1800s up through the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Thousands yeah. of experiments were done on Americans. Most were done without any form of consent or were performed through coercion. Some were performed by rogue doctors, just curious about what mm-hmm. might happen to their test subjects. Yeah. Others were paid for and performed by the government itself. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, many of the victims of these experiments were people who had no power to stop them. They were patients in in mental institutions, they were prisoners, they were military members, and they were children. Mm -hmm. And I've got a list of a few of the things that were done. Okay. In 1896, Dr. Arthur Wentworth performed spinal taps on 29 young children without the knowledge or consent of their parents at the Children's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Wow. Simply to discover whether doing so would be harmful. Huh. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say yeah. Mm-hmm. In 1908, three Philadelphia researchers infected dozens of children with tuberculosis at the St. Vincent's House Orphanage in Philadelphia, causing permanent blindness in some of the children and painful lesions and inflammation of the eyes in many of the others. In the study, they referred to the children as, quote, material used. What? I don't even understand. Like, there wasn't enough people with tuberculosis? Like, what did you... Wow. I don't know. The Statesville Penitentiary Malaria Study was a controlled study of the effects of malaria on the prisoners of Stateville Penitentiary near Joliet, Illinois, beginning in the 1940s. The study was conducted by the Department of Medicine at the University of Chicago in conjunction with the United States Army and the State Department. At the Nuremberg trials, Nazi doctors cited the precedent of the malaria experiment as part of their defense. The study continued at Stateville Penitentiary for 29 years. In related studies from 1944 to 1946, Dr. Alf Alving, a professor at the University of Chicago Medical School, purposefully infected psychiatric patients at the Illinois State Hospital with malaria so that he could test experimental treatments on them. Wow. In 1953, the Atomic Energy Commission sponsored a study to discover if radioactive iodine affected premature babies differently from full-term babies. In the experiment, researchers from Harper Hospital in Detroit orally administered iodine-131 to 65 premature and full-term infants who weighed from 2.1 to 5.5 pounds. I mean, (laughs) what... From 1942 to 1944, the U.S. Chemical Warfare Service conducted experiments which exposed thousands of U.S. military personnel to mustard gas in order to test the effectiveness of gas masks and protective clothing. Yeah. Wow. Those are just a few. Mm-hmm. Telling you there are thousands yeah, yeah. of tests like these that were done on Americans. 
by either crazy rogue doctors or by the government itself. And it was primarily poor and underprivileged Americans. People who had no power. Yeah. And more and often than not, they tend to also be minorities. Yeah. And if they if they still have living memories of that kind of shit, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense as to why there is a trust issue yeah. when it comes to the government saying like, come here, I've got something to help your health. Yeah. However... That said, I don't think the COVID vaccine is a trick by the government. No, I don't either. Just simply based on the fact that it's too widespread. Yeah, it's global. It's a yeah, it's a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. So, and millions at this point, millions of Americans have been infected by it. Yeah, I don't think at this point it is, but I don't know how to prove that. No, I don't. I can't prove it, but it's like it's yeah. too big. I feel like to be some kind of experiment. Me too, but I, I don't know how I could ever prove that to somebody, especially if they had living memory experience of being completely and utterly neglected and abused by the same system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know how I could convince. Right. So it is. It's understandable. Yeah. That many people, including people of color, are hesitant to rush right out and get a shot. Yeah. And I think this is just me talking. I think. The best solution is the one that's currently happening. Yeah. Keep vaccinations as public and Mm -hmm. as transparent as possible. Encourage people in positions of power and authority to get vaccinated in as public a way as possible. Encourage and support questioning of scientists and doctors by lay people and have those doctors and professionals give honest and forthcoming answers. Yeah. Allow discourse and allow people to share their vaccination stories, the good, the bad, the scary, plus the reasons why they're choosing to getting to get vaccinated in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I also strongly believe that workplaces should provide incentives for their employees to get vaccinated. Yeah, I believe that too. Don't make it punitive. <laughs> like yeah. don't be all like if you don't get vaccinated, you're fired. No. You know, make it an incentive. Exactly. And treat it, it like a holiday mm-hmm. or a bonus or offer some kind of token reward or something yep. for getting vaccinated to your employees. I think that's how that's the smart solution. Yeah. Um, we've talked a little bit about that on the show about whether or not how much, uh, proverbial carrot or stick you use for the vaccine. Right. And I think that for people you use the carrot Mm -hmm. and then for everyone else, for the government, you use the stick or for For businesses. Yeah. Use the stick. Use the stick. But businesses to their employees should use the carrot. That's what I think. Yeah, I I agree. I think. And the thing is, I do think that so far, They are doing a pretty good job Mm -hmm. at like making, you know, the vaccination process public Mm -hmm. and sharing images and photos and Mm -hmm. live on television Mm -hmm. streams or whatever of of important people getting vaccinated. And I think that really is going to hopefully help encourage lots of people Mm -hmm. to get vaccinated when they see their favorite celebrity or favorite singer or Gladys Knight, you know. I hope so. I I hope that we can do this right because if we get it wrong, it could kill us all. Right. Because in order to get to herd immunity, the current estimate or guesstimate by these smart science people is that we've got to have somewhere between 70 and 90 percent of people immune Mm-hmm. before we actually have herd immunity. Yeah. And, and that includes minorities. Exactly. And rich and powerful people need to stop thinking of this as some sort of a thing where them getting the vaccine ends the problem because it does not. 
Right. And I've actually seen, oh, it's so frustrating. I personally have seen white people, white friends that I have getting their shots and now behaving as if there's no COVID. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Anymore. The problem is still here. And if we don't solve it, then it will get worse. And I don't think a lot of people quite grasp that. Yeah, it's a very Mm self-focused, self-attention oriented thing but they don't seem to get that if they get the vaccine right now soon and then the rest of us don't get it and there's given enough time then that thing will mutate into something worse that they will still be susceptible to that's correct and i don't know if they're just not grasping long-term thinking or what but if if we don't get this right it's going to kill all of us not just the poor people <laughs> right it's going to get yeah it's going to turn into a horrible uh-huh. potentially horrible variation of the virus that we can't contain yeah um, it's in all of our best interests or to do this it could as a kill whole. us in just the financial sense mm-hmm. of we'll have to do another mass lockdown and jobs will be lost and mm-hmm. you know people will be unemployed and and in that way that's also a killer that, that brings me to something that I wanted to bring up in this episode. There is a book that has come out recently by a lady named Heather McGee, and it's called um, The Sum of Us, How mm. Racism Affects All of Us and How We Can Move Forward. Yeah. It's a it's a good book, and she's been doing kind of the rounds on a lot of the, the talk shows recently, and I've heard her on a few interviews. And her argument is that in the um, 50s and 60s and 40s, Mm-hmm. Um, there were public pools that were funded by taxpayer money that were great, and a lot of people loved them, and they didn't allow black people in. And swimming, then, you mean swimming pools? Swimming pools, Okay, yes. right, like public pools. Public pools, swimming okay, pools, swimming and pools. parks Yeah. Um, that were nice, and uh, they, they didn't allow black people to go in them, and then civil rights legislation said black people can go in them. A lot of cities cemented over their pools, just they got rid of them. them. They, they would rather mm-hmm. get rid of these pools that all the white people were enjoying than let black people in. Mm-hmm. And that's that sort of zero sum thinking that is mm-hmm. happening here with the vaccine yes. that I think she talks about a lot about in that book. And she's been talking a lot about in her interviews is thinking that any gains from black people is a loss from white people is, is, is a is a mistake. It's a logical fallacy. That's true. And there are con- countless evidences of it happening. And this vaccine is just another one. And I think that's part of the reason why um, she's been so prominent on television recently because it does tie into the, the vaccine it's, thing. It's topical. Mm-hmm. It's right now and it's happening. It's a it's a good book. It just came out. It's um it's a bestseller. What's it called again? It's um called The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. Okay, cool. Yeah. Wow. Well, that was an incredibly well put together, interesting pre- presentation of information there that you had. I didn't know most of that. My I, mind has yeah. been blown. I didn't know most of it either until I went digging and actually yeah. sat down and read about it. And I got to thank you because that was really informative. And, and yeah, it just gave me more perspective on the things that I knew. But man, I think it also provides a little bit, hopefully a little bit of understanding as to why there is hesitancy and yeah. rushing right out and getting mm-hmm. vaccinated, um, mm-hmm. especially in the black community. For me, what I've been thinking about this Black History Month is the sheer amount of names of people who were either civil rights activists, forgotten civil rights activists who we didn't learn their names, but we're learning them now. Mm-hmm. People who did a lot of work or names of people who I already knew but did not understand the amount of things that they did. And then there are people who literally just got killed by the police or other people. And 
if you start thinking about the amount of names of those people, it becomes like the wall of Vietnam war soldiers where the, the, there's so many names. I can't know them all. Yeah. There's so many names. You can't, you can't read them all in just like one sitting. Yeah. And that like, the, I don't know how the, the weight of that is, is on me this, this black history month. I I'm feeling that that is so big and I don't see how anybody doesn't feel it. Mm-hmm. I don't see how it doesn't affect all of us every day. And I, I, I hope that it does. I guess there are some people who, who it does affect every day. Um, Gosh, yeah. but I hope there are more white people out there who that uh, yeah. hurts every day. At or least enough it. to stop and think for a minute. Mm-hmm. Because the, 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 it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was just going over my head. I can't tell you how many times I'll hear a news story about you know Eric Garner or Michael Brown. And I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot about Michael Brown. That was the mm-hmm. guy in Ferguson when this happened, and it's like. Holy crap, you know, the, 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 the amount of names is so large. Mm-hmm. And that's what's been uh, sitting on my heart in this, in this Black History Month so far. And I wanted to say that because I, that's how I feel. Mm-hmm. So thanks for listening to my feelings and yeah. listening to Amanda's excellent presentation. Yep, thank you. You know, if you like this and you want to hear, we have a, this is a series, this is a bonus series that we've been doing on the Carolina Snowflakes podcast. It's a little different from our normal material mm-hmm. but it is something that we do a lot more research on we work a lot we harder. go we definitely go more in depth i would say mm-hmm. for so it, it, it's BLM. not something we can do every week but we do have a weekly show mm-hmm. and you can find that on the internet carolinasnowflakes.com and if you want to go join our facebook where we have a lot of really cool people talking about issues that affect black lives matter uh, you can find us on facebook facebook.com forward slash Carolina Snowflakes. And if, you know, we're horribly privileged white people and you want to just put us in our place and you don't want it to be public, we have an email. Carolinasnowflakes at gmail.com. Gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye.